When you become a widow, the heartache can be overwhelming. You feel lost, you feel broken, you feel alone, and sometimes you feel like the pain will never go away. I believe that every widow has the capacity to endure, the power to overcome, and the determination to create a new life filled with meaning and purpose. That's why I wanted to create a show called Widow 180. People tell me they come here for the positivity. They listen to Widow 180, the podcast, to be inspired. They come to Widow 180 to be reminded that they have options, that the pain of loss is not a life sentence. Widow 180 is about turning tragedy, loss, and fear into strength, creativity, and a new passion for life. My mission each week is to arm you with these powerful stories of transformation and knowledge so that you can navigate life after loss. I'm Jen Zwink. I'm so glad you're listening. Let's get to the episode. Hello to all the podcast listeners out there. Thanks again for being here this this week to listen. And um, this week we have Autumn Tolley Jackson on the show. Autumn, thanks for being here with us today. Thank you. I'm really excited to talk with you. So everyone, Autumn is an author and a speaker, and she also has a website called Growing With Grief that has lots of resources on there, so you should definitely go check it out. Her new book is called Boldly Into the Darkness, Living with Loss, Growing with Grief, and Holding on to Happiness. And Autumn, we have so much to talk about today, so let's just go ahead and we'll get started right into the story. Um, just tell us what happened with, uh, with your husband, Joe. Yeah, so in February of 2015, my husband, Joe, went and played basketball in the evenings. And he was trying to get into shape. So after he'd played basketball, he told me he was going to go for a run. And he wasn't going to come into the house. He was just going to park and go for a run. It was unusually warm weather for February in Eastern Oregon. Um, So I heard him come home, and I knew he went for his run. And it was about 10 o'clock at night when he'd gotten home. And about 10.30 or 10.45, I started getting that feeling that something wasn't right. and at that point, what I really expected was that he hurt an ankle or he hurt a knee or something, but I felt I needed to go look for him. And so I left, I left my house and just drove down the road and I took the car so I could be quicker because we had two kids at that point. And when I did find him about two houses down from ours, um, he was unresponsive lying on the side of the road. So at that point, I started CPR, but realized I didn't have my phone. It was still in the house. And so I had to stop, and I ran into our neighbor's house, screaming at them to call 911 that I just found my husband on the side of the road, and went back out there and did CPR, and an ambulance eventually got there, and they took over, and I think all in all, they worked on him for about an hour and he never, they weren't able to bring him back. And so he passed away at that point. Okay. And you mentioned you had little kids at home. How old were your kids? Yeah. So we had one son that was a few weeks shy of turning three 
and we had actually just had a baby. So we had a two week old. Oh my God. So how old was Joe at that time? He was 30. Oh my God. So young. Okay. Yeah. So he, okay. So what happened with right after that? Did you guys, um, you told me that they never really did find out the reason. Yeah. So at first that night it was dark. It was late. The cops thought, well, we have a 30 year old. He was a wildland firefighter. He was an avid hunter. He was in pretty good shape and they don't just die on the side of a road. And so they were thinking a hit and run or something along those lines. And um, they took him and had him scanned and found no external injuries anywhere. So they were able to rule that out pretty quickly. And he did end up doing, we had a full autopsy done on him and toxicology and a bunch of that stuff. And basically all they could end up telling us was his heart stopped. They don't know why his heart stopped, but his heart stopped and they called it unknown natural conditions. Unknown natural conditions. Yeah. Um, and that must've been incredibly frustrating and hard. It was. And confusing. (laughs) Yeah. I mean, a 30 year old healthy man doesn't just die. (laughs) And if he does, there's a reason for it. And it was hard to wrap my mind around not knowing just that it could happen and it did happen. And there's no good answers. There's no person to blame. Nobody did anything to him. He didn't do anything to himself. And none of those are good things either, but they were things I understood. I didn't understand how a 30 year old just died. Right. Like it might make the grieving process easier if you have an answer. Yeah. If you don't, if you, yeah. And there's no reason now. Yeah. yeah. And that's really what I, I felt like I really needed that at that time. Oh yeah. And I just didn't get it. And I waited months. It took months for the autopsy report to come back. And I kept thinking they'd find something. They'd find an underlying medical condition or something. And they just didn't. Usually it's then, like a, a heart problem that they didn't know about or it's something, yeah. something. And we even went and did genetic testing on him afterwards to see if there was a genetic condition that he had that we didn't know about. And one gene that kind of ties to hearts that they don't know anything about came back as a little abnormal. Oh my God, that's it. <laughs> So that was, that was the best answer we got that potentially he had something genetic going on, but we don't know anything about it or what it is or what happened or what caused it. Or I think that's the hardest. That's the hardest thing is not having a reason. There is no reason. There's, you know, nothing that you can tie anything to that's going to help you grieve any easier by not knowing. Yeah. So I'm and sure there's no your such mind thing. is just like going crazy with thoughts. It, it is. And I mean, there's no good reason for somebody to die anyways. There's not going to be a reason that's going to make you feel better about it. Right. But it just added that whole other layer of complexity. Yeah. Yeah. So how did you deal with all the stress of, of what happened? I mean, you have a newborn. Yeah, I didn't, I didn't. (laughs) Um, I, 
really was overwhelmed with the shock of the situation. I even looking back, I have a lot of fog moments. Then I just remember sitting and holding on to this newborn and feeding him when I could or when I needed to. And I was lucky enough to have amazing friends and family that came immediately as soon as they heard in the middle of the night. And my mom really stepped up and was able to kind of run things and let me try to absorb the shock and to figure out what the heck was happening in my life and what I needed to do. And your mom ended up moving in with you for a little while? She did. She was able to take leave from her job and kind of work from, from my house a little bit, but she ended up taking almost a full three months off to really help me. It it really was because I don't know how I would have done it without that support um, between having a toddler and an infant and just trying to function. And I know women do that. There's lots of women who are widowed who have to go back to work right away and have to take care of kids and do it all on their own. And um, I'm sure I would have found a way if I had to, but I was blessed to not have to. Exactly. Exactly. And so your community and your coworkers, they really rallied and stepped up too. What what are some of the things that they did for you? Yeah, I live in a pretty rural area in a small town and word travels fast. So by, I think probably six o'clock the morning after Joe had died, we'd already had our neighbors closest to us had brought pans of breakfast because by that point we had a house full of family. And people continued to bring food throughout the days. The garbage company dropped off an extra garbage can. They didn't ask us. They just left one there for us. Yeah. Um, the furniture store we had came by and brought an extra refrigerator because they knew with all the food that we'd be getting, we'd need more to store. And just a ton of, a ton of support. There were a lot of other ways people supported us. Um, and- with my work, I was... Mm-hmm really lucky to be able to, I was on maternity leave as it was anyways, but my work has a program called leave share, which allows coworkers and other people within the company to donate their sick leave to me or to anybody who needs it, but they donated to me and I was able to take off a full six months paid because of their generosity. And it was just amazing. I've never expected. I was trying to figure out how to deal with money. And all of a sudden my boss told me I didn't need to. Oh my God. What a blessing. It was just step up and help you get through it. I mean, like I said, you've got a newborn and another one at home and yeah, that's one less thing to have to worry about is going back to work right away. Yeah. And it really, it really helped giving me the time I needed to learn how to process my grief and how to Mm -hmm. rebuild this new life I now had to live. So you told me that your mom was really uh, implemental in like kind of pushing you to do more things than just sit in the rocker and stare at the wall (laughs) to kind of snap out of it. You know, like, I mean, you, you, Obviously there's, you know, very good reason to be in that state for a very long time, but you said your mom really kind of pushed you to do some things. She did. And looking back on it, 
I don't think she could have done a better job. And I don't know if she did it intentionally or if it was just what she felt at that time. But that first few weeks, I really struggled eating after he died. I just, it, it physically hurt me, which was a really hard concept for people to understand. But if I ate something, it would physically make me feel sick and like I had a stomach ache. And so I just didn't eat. And so she worked with my sister to figure out that I could drink. So they made me smoothies for weeks. And she kind of let me just be in this spot where I didn't know how to function at all, even to the basic thing of eat, figuring out how to eat. Yeah. And kind of once I got that figured out and I was getting nutrients in, then she'd give me a little bit more responsibility. She had been taking care of the baby and basically just bringing to me either to hold if I wanted him or to feed him. And slowly she got, okay, now you need to change his diaper. You need to change his clothes. You need to read a story to the old, our older son, Cody. And it was kind of one of these slow processes. And she'd just gradually add on more things that I needed to do that I was going to be responsible for eventually anyways. Yeah. And so I'd have to help dish up dinner and then I'd have to help make dinner. And then I'd have to go with her to the store And then she'd send me to the store by myself. And it was kind of the slow progression back to the real world and back to functioning. That is awesome. (laughs) Yeah. I think it helped me so much just because I didn't know how to do it. And I think for people who haven't been in the experience, they don't understand that when you lose somebody so close to you, you, you lose your partner, you forget how to do the most basic things or you don't have the energy for it. And you just you almost have to relearn all of these pretty basic functions. It's the energy. Yeah. Yeah. And I was really blessed to be given both the time to do that and the people to help me do that. Yes. Yeah. I mean, it, it, it is, it's, it's not, I know eating is just one of those things where it's not front and center of your, of your mind. Your, your mind just doesn't go there. You're not feeling it. You don't really feel hungry. You don't feel like you need to eat. It's so basic, but, um, God, thank God she was there to kind of just help you through everything. That's awesome. What she did and the structure to it, you know, just gradually kind of get you back into the real world. (laughs) That's awesome. Um, So when I asked you, I did ask you um, when we talked the other day, just about getting through grief and you said, um, or how did you get through grief? You said uh, not pushing grief away and you showed your grief in places and I guess like public places. So what are some of the, can you name some of the public places that you were in when you have cried or... (laughs) Oh, (laughs) Um, or had a meltdown, (laughs) breakdown... Yeah. My first instincts were to really push grief away. And eventually I learned that I needed to embrace it and just be okay with having those feelings. And I have cried at work, in meetings. I have cried in church. I've cried in the grocery store, in my car. I cried yeah. at a baby shower for a friend. Oh, I've you cried did. at a wedding. Um, I don't know that there's too many places I haven't cried. <laughs> And as I became more comfortable with my grief, I used to like run and try to hide it. And I realized I wasn't doing that for me and it wasn't doing me any favors. It was more to keep other people from being uncomfortable. And eventually I learned, I just need to, if that's what I'm feeling, then I 
need to cry and it's okay. And I don't need to apologize from it. I don't need to make a big scene out of it, but it's okay to sit there and cry and have my feelings and then rejoin and participate as much as I'm able to after that. Yeah. Get through the moment, no matter where it is. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) When I kept trying to push the moments away, they'd always find me eventually. Yeah. (laughs) And they'd be so much worse at that point. So. Uh, Well, when faced with what you've been through uh, and any widow, really, like there are some people that kind of drift out of your life for a little while. And then there are some that just step right up to the plate and they are there. They are your grief person. They are there for you in every way. And sometimes it's so random. Like it's not even a close person. It's just like an acquaintance that, that just, they're like an angel sent to you. So who was your go-to grief person? My go-to grief person was a guy named Kyle. And I had known him previously as an acquaintance, but he was a coworker who kind of worked with me, but not very closely. And I really struggled right after Joe died, finding somebody to talk to. Even my mom, both of her parents were still alive. My dad was still alive. All of her siblings were still alive. She didn't understand that close loss. And Kyle, this coworker that I'd talked to a number of times, but never had any deep conversations with, um, ended up telling me at one point that he'd lost his dad and he understands grief. And if I need somebody to talk to about how other people are making dumb comments to me about it, or if I just need to vent about something, or if I'm awake at three o'clock in the morning, cause I can't sleep, even though I'm exhausted, he's around to talk to. And I eventually took him up on that offer. Um, he had told me that he always muted his phone at three o'clock in the morning or when he went to bed. And I was amazed that he was always up whenever I had, I had these times where I needed to talk. Yeah. Um, and I found out later that when he made that offer, he stopped muting his phone. Oh, <laughs> but he really just wanted to be there and he understood grief and he became this person I could talk to mostly through messaging mm-hmm. and texting but I didn't have to wear my mask. I didn't have to pretend that what somebody said didn't bother me, even though I knew whatever they said was in the best of intentions. Yeah. I didn't have to pretend to be happy or pretend to be sad. And so he really let me just wear my grief and wear whatever I was feeling. But he also did something that a lot of other people hadn't done, which is he talked to me one about Joe, about my late husband and, the things we did and the memories and how we met and really encouraged me to talk about him. And the other thing he did was he'd talk to me about things that were completely unrelated to my loss. And I found that a lot of people in the community didn't know what to say to me anymore. Yeah. And so just having those normal conversations about school or work or a book I was reading was really hard for me. was able to, bring those normal things back into my life through this conversation. So he really over time became this person that saw this side of me that nobody else was seeing. And I didn't have to pretend and wear that mask. I would like to invite you to get our latest freebie designed just for you. How to get your life back together after loss, a 10 step checklist 
After countless hours of research, interviewing hundreds of widows, and through my own experience with grief, I have compiled this list of the 10 steps you need to take to put your life back together after losing a loved one. It's normal to feel overwhelmed and also normal to not know where to start when it comes to picking up the pieces of your shattered world. Here's where you start. You can get this free 10-step checklist at www.widow180.com forward slash freebie. That's www.widow180.com forward slash freebie. So you guys were friends for a while um, and he was kind of your, your chief support person, but then things kind of went from friendly to a little more than friendly. And when did that happen? Yeah. (laughs) About five months after Joe had passed away, I was really caught off guard when I realized that, well, I still miss Joe and I still wanted to talk to him about things. Mm -hmm. I also now, whenever something happened, when the kids did something or anything, he had become that person that I wanted to share stuff with. And it got me thinking that, well, maybe, maybe there's more than just a grief person here. Maybe there's feelings. And um, it took a lot of kind of internal looking to even broach the subject with him. And he at first didn't really want to have anything to do with it. He wanted, he was there as a friend. He wanted to make sure that he wasn't taking advantage of me. Yeah. Um, but I really pushed the issue that I have feelings for you. And I had an amazing thing with Joe and I think an amazing thing could happen again. And I wasn't willing to say no to it, even though, like I said, it was five months. It was so soon. And I was so caught off guard by these feelings, but yeah, um, we eventually decided to very slowly start dating and having more of a relationship. Wow. So you had that feeling you were, Well, I mean, yeah, you don't want to push that away either. Like you're pushing away your grief, but then you have these feelings for somebody else and you can't ignore that. Yeah. And I think it really helped that right before Joe had died, when I was recovering from birth and I was really tired and he was taking care of our youngest son, the baby a lot that I told him I didn't know what I'd do without him. And normally he'd give some sort of flippant response to that. And this time he took the time and he looked at me and he said, you'd be all right. You'll find somebody who will love you and the boys just as much as I do. And I didn't know where it came from. I don't know why he said that. I don't know why he felt he needed to be serious in that moment. But he told me that and less than a week later he died, but it really made me feel like I had his permission and he saw it coming. So um, I don't, I think that really helped me a lot jump into this new relationship for him to say that yeah standing there with your newborn where did that come from I have no idea he didn't have any health issues that we knew about there was I mean there was nothing but it was a gift that what a gift my god wow so you, you started dating Kyle and then how did your friends and family react to that? That I really want to know because that was, like you said, it was pretty soon, like six months or so or seven months maybe after. Yeah. So again, I live in a small rural community and so everybody <laughs> yeah. knows everybody's business and I wanted to make sure that my family and especially Joe's family found out from me 
And so, um, mostly people just wanted to be like, are you sure you know what you're doing? Are you sure you're not just trying to replace Joe? But they'd ask those questions, but overall they are pretty supportive. Um, Joe's brother was great and he really just wanted to make sure that I wasn't going to put the kids in a position to be hurt more. And I was watching out for them, but he said, whatever makes you happy is what, what I want you to do and I'll support you. Good answer. (laughs) Yeah, it was a great answer. And the only place where I really had a little bit of an issue was with Joe's mom. And I called and told her, and I think she just couldn't comprehend when I was telling her on the phone, because at this point she lived seven or eight hours away. And there was a lot of, how could you do this? How could you do that? What's going on? And just a lot of emotions. I think I really caught her off guard. And she didn't, she couldn't process it. She didn't understand it. And so it didn't go very well for that phone call. And I know as soon as I hung up, she took the time and I'm sure she talked to her husband about it. And I know she talked to some of her friends about it and some of Joe's friends. And for the most part, the people she talked to said that it was whatever we needed to make me happy and to make the boys happy. And it took her about a week. And after that week, she has become the most amazing person. And she's still very much in our family and has fully embraced Kyle into our life. And not long after. I just wanted to ask you, I'm sorry. So when you're on the phone with her and you're having this conversation and maybe it, there's a little anger that is coming out where she's saying things to you. Like, how could you do this? What is your response? What were you saying? Mostly I was just crying (laughs) and saying, I I still love Joe. He's always a part of my life. I'm not trying to replace him. He's always going to be there. We're always going to be here for you, no matter what happens. And, um, trying to reassure her really because I think some of the fear was just about that we don't without Joe where's the connection to her yeah and I was trying to to remind her that she's part of our life no matter what happens no matter who else is there yeah um but I think it was a little out of left field for her and that is a really tough conversation to have. I mean, yeah, yeah. tears for sure. I can see on both sides. It's just hard though, because that's your mother-in-law. So it's like when there's angry words coming at you and you're trying not to be defensive. I mean, you don't want to be defensive. You're just kind of explaining. It's hard to explain to someone though, that, you know, this is the stage that you're at in your grief and it's, um, you know, it's not, it's not moving on and forgetting about him. Mm -hmm. It's not at all, but I think people don't understand that. (laughs) Yeah. It's a hard, it's a hard concept for people. And of course it took me a long time to decide that I did actually want to date Kyle. And there was a lot of thinking on that. And so it wasn't really fair to expect her to be supportive when she had 30 seconds to try to process it. Yeah. 
Yeah. Um, but like I said, she became the most supportive person and she invited Kyle and I to go up and visit her and her husband at their home. And she took both of us aside and basically sat down and said, there is always room for more love. And that's the big thing. And as long as he treats you good and he treats those boys good, then there's always room for more love and he will be a part of our family. If there are any in-laws listening right now, (laughs) words to think about, right? Yeah. There's always room for more love. Yes. Good, good words. So then you guys get married. You guys got married in June of 2017. And tell, tell us all about your wedding day. Tell us all about that. Yeah. So we went and we had a smallish wedding. I think we, the venue only allowed a hundred people. So it was nice to be able to keep it pretty small. And we did it at a formal gardens over on the Pacific ocean. And it was actually a place I'd gone after Joe had died to try to heal. And so it had special meaning to me and Kyle was more than happy to go along with that. Um, and it's Oregon and the Pacific coast. It's probably going to rain. And we planned for that and we had umbrellas for everybody. And it was an amazing, like 72 degree day, blue sky. It did rain for about five minutes. Um, but everything was just as good as I could have wanted it. And nice. his family and my family and Joe's family were all present and it was, it was emotional, but it was, it was an amazing thing. What, uh, you told me that you had, um, a couple of things there to honor Joe. Um, and tell everybody that idea because I, I love all these things that you did. I, yes. One of the main things we did, and I really went back and forth on this, but we knew we wanted to have a memorial table because Kyle's dad had died and I'd also just lost a grandfather not too long before. And, um, a cousin I was really close with had passed away also. And Joe, and he's such a big part of my life. And as much as it seems weird to admit it, if Joe hadn't died, Kyle and I wouldn't be together. I'd still be with Joe. And so it's kind of one of those weird loops where it's like, you don't want the bad thing to happen, but the good things that are coming afterwards wouldn't have happened without the bad thing and yes um eventually we decided that all these people mean something to us and they're all very important people in our lives that are no longer there and so we did a memorial table with pictures and we had a picture of joe there and we had a picture of kyle's dad and my grandpa and my cousin and it was right there next to the guest book right where everybody could see that these were the people we love and the people we miss so that was that was one of the first things. And then I really wanted to keep wearing my wedding rings as a widow. That's a huge conversation among widows is when do you take your rings off? When is it appropriate? Are you still married? Should you still wear them? And I did it and I did the same things and I played with it and I took my rings off and I put them back on and I took them off. And at one point in time, Kyle noticed I wasn't wearing them and he goes, you don't have to take your rings off because of me. They're part of your story. And so I really wanted to embrace that in our wedding. And I'd been wearing my wedding band from Joe. And then I'd also had a custom ring made um, that I call a widow's ring that 
symbolized the years Joe and I had together and the loss. And I wanted to keep wearing those. And I just wanted to add a new wedding band to them. And so I felt it was important to explain that in our wedding ceremony. And so we worked out with the minister that he'd explain that during that ceremony, we were adding a third ring onto my ring finger because there's been love and there's been loss before, and it doesn't take away from what's coming, but it's part of the story. And you can't pretend that part of the story doesn't exist. You can embrace it and love it and honor it and still move forward with wonderful things and a wedding. So. Oh my God, um, Autumn. I love (laughs) this idea. I love, I had never heard anybody talk about this before. I love it though. I have to say when I came up is that Kyle is so into it, you know? Oh yeah. He was whatever would make me feel better. He was all about embracing and uh, he's been amazing for it. And I know when I first came up with the idea, I looked all over trying to figure out what people did. Is this a thing? Is this a thing that I'm allowed to do? And eventually I realized that it didn't matter. (laughs) It doesn't matter. I could do whatever I wanted. Fantastic idea though. It's so great. I love it. I love it. So still I wear, I have two wedding bands on my ring finger and a widow's ring in between them. And that's all part of me and part of my story. It is. So why get rid of it? I love it. I love it. And you don't have to. Yeah. Yeah. Oh my gosh. So you start this new life with Kyle and how is he with Cody and Wade? How, how was he stepping into that role? Oh, he was amazing with them and going from a bachelor who hadn't really been around a whole bunch of small kids to basically now being around a toddler and an infant. Um, (laughs) He really embraced it and he tried to help as much as possible. We didn't spend a whole lot of time together where Cody, the oldest son was around him because we didn't want him to get attached before we knew what was going on. But of course, once we got married and moved in and even before that he'd really picked up and uh, the face his face the first time the baby puked all over him was amazing (laughs) but he handled it all and dealt with it and yeah did whatever he could to make those kids happy and to have fun and um he really stepped into that dad role yeah and you guys stayed in the same house right We did. Um, And again, that was another conversation because I didn't want Kyle to be forced to be in a place he was uncomfortable being. Yeah. And he was adamant that the kids had already, and me too, had already been through enough and we had a perfectly good house and a really good location. Why should we get rid of that? And he didn't want to make the kids go through any other big changes. And so we stayed in the same house and over time, we were able to make it feel like his house also. Yeah. Awesome. Okay. So what, what was the decision that you guys made about the, um, about Kyle actually adopting the boys? Yeah, we looked a lot into different like legal roles that he could have. And of course there's, as a step parent, he has some legal roles over children, but I really wanted somebody else to fare that, to share that full responsibility a hundred percent. Um, it's a heavy weight. It's a heavy load to carry and knowing you're the only person that's legally responsible for your kids. Yeah. And so we decided that we wanted him to adopt him 
We didn't want it to be a step-parent thing. We didn't want it to be a legal guardian. We wanted an actual adoption where he would be their dad. But at the same time, we didn't want to erase Joe. And a lot of times with adoptions, you get a new birth certificate with the adopted parent's name on it and you get a new last name. And we didn't want to do that. None of our family really wanted that to happen. And so I think it took us about a year and a half to finally figure out how to do this and to find a lawyer who fig- who could do an actual legal adoption, making Kyle their legal parent without having those changes be part of it. Yes. And- it's all these decisions because you want to keep that tie still with the name and with Joe, but you want Kyle to embrace that full role as a father. It's tough. Yeah. It's tough. Yeah. But that's a good thing that you came up with, you know? Yeah. And I don't even know if you can do it in every state. I know I was able to find a way to make it work in Oregon. And now nobody is going to know because Kyle has a different last name than the boys. But he does, we do have that piece of paper that says he's a legal parent. Yeah. And that was good just for taking some of that pressure off of me. And I think it's good to show the kids eventually that he wanted you as his own sons. Yeah. And it's more, more than just blood. It's yeah. Family can be whoever is there for you. Yeah. Family is anyone, anyone who steps up. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Um, What do the boys call Kyle? Do they call him dad? They do. They both call him dad now. Wade, the youngest one, of course, didn't grow up knowing Joe. So he only ever knew Kyle and he was two when we got married. Mm -hmm. And so they had both called him Kyle and we made sure that they called him Kyle until after the wedding. And then we said, you can keep calling him Kyle or you can call him dad or you can call him whatever you want. And I think within two or three days, they both started calling him dad and um, they stuck with it. So So what about you when you were like around that transition time? How was that for you? Were you saying like, go find dad? Or were you saying, go find Kyle? Because how do you kind of transition into that too? Yeah. I think I said Kyle until both of them were pretty consistently calling him dad. Okay. Um, The older one at that point when we got married was about five and so I think he got to the point where he told me to stop calling him Kyle (laughs) but I I didn't want to force anything on him I wanted it to be their decision yeah (laughs) that's funny okay so then you guys decided to expand the family so tell us tell us about that what happened after that yeah Joe and I had thought we were going to stop after two kids. Um, but Kyle and I really decided we wanted to have a, a, another baby. And so we, I'd had some issues in the past with miscarriages and we didn't really want it to be a big thing, but if it happened, we wanted it to happen. And luckily we were able to get pregnant pretty easy and it was a great pregnancy and there were no issues. And in July of 2018, we had a little baby girl to add to our family. So we named her Riley Marie. Riley Marie. Okay. Beautiful. Um, so then what happened with Riley? 
So that was in July when she was born and we had an amazing three and a half months and she was probably the easiest baby I've ever been around. Always happy, always smiley. Um, the boys just doted on her. And at the end of October in 2018, she was about three and a half months old. We all got colds and we didn't think much of it. They weren't horrible colds, but we had sore throats and runny noses. And um, she began showing all the symptoms of having a cold. And we weren't too concerned about it. Like I said, we all had it and she wasn't eating great. And it got to the point where I was getting a little bit worried about her being dehydrated. And so we decided to bring her into the clinic and they agreed that she was a little dehydrated and noticed a little bit of weakness in her neck muscles, which she's still three and a half months old. So it's not like she has a really strong neck and her head's still a little wobbly anyways, but um, they sent us over to the hospital to get an IV placed in. And she had such amazing chubby arms and legs and such tiny veins that they just could not get an IV placed in her. And so plan B was they admitted us to the hospital and they put a nasogastric tube in, which basically goes from the nose into the stomach and allows us to put food directly into her stomach. And so Kyle and I stayed up all night. I think we took two or three hour shifts each and every 15 minutes, whoever was holding her would give her some formula. And in the morning she had more color. She wasn't dehydrated. She was you could tell she still didn't feel great, but she was giving us little smiles and pretty happy. And um, one of the doctors came in and looked at her and he was still a little bit worried because she was still showing a little more weakness in holding up her head than she had before. And he wanted to just rule out meningitis. Say maybe if she has it, we can catch it early. It won't be as big of a deal as it can be. And they needed to do a spinal tap on her. And so they asked us to say good, just step out of the room and they gave us a minute to kind of lay her down in the crib and talk to her. And we stepped out of the room and we went to the waiting room. And I don't, I think we had just barely sat down and we heard a code blue page on the, on the speakers in the hospital and they paged Riley's room number. And so a nurse came and grabbed us right away. And I just remember thinking, this can't be happening again. And we went into the room and they basically, it was filled with almost everybody who worked in our little rural hospital. And we found out she had coded when they had rolled her over onto her side. They hadn't even started this, the procedure. And they didn't know what had happened. Her, she just stopped breathing. Her heart stopped. And they started CPR and were working on her immediately and for 40 minutes they worked on her and at about the 40 minute mark the doctor that had been in with her when she coded and her regular doctor came out to us and basically said we will keep working on her as long as you want us to but it's been 40 minutes and it doesn't look like we're going to be able to bring her around and so I just remember sitting there and Kyle and I looked at each other and I don't think we talked because we didn't need to, but the thought that was going through both of our minds was how do you tell them to stop trying to save your daughter's life? Yeah. And I, I, before we'd even had time to process that, 
all of a sudden we heard some shouting from inside her room and they were able to get her heart going again right about at that moment. So we didn't have to figure out how to make that decision. Um, but they got her heart going and she was life lighted to the closest big town that had a pediatric intensive care unit. And I went with her and Kyle met us there. He drove and, um, they got her stabilized and there were some ups and downs thinking maybe, maybe she'd be okay. And eventually her heart started working better and her lungs started working better. And unfortunately her brain did not recover. And so after a few days in the hospital, she was declared brain dead. Oh my God. Autumn, I have no words. Like, I don't, I don't even know. Um, uh, I mean, how do, how do you, how do you even breathe? You know? I, I don't think you do sometimes. Yeah. I mean, I remember, I think I'd so many times I'd just sit there holding my breath without even realize I was holding my breath. Yeah. Um, we did when Kyle and I knew that she wasn't going to come home with us, we asked about organ donation and she was barely over the size requirements to donate, but she was able to donate her heart and her liver and her kidneys. And that was, it was such an interesting process and it, meant we had to stay in the hospital for a few more days while they tried to find matches. And for a moment, because we didn't know what had caused her to code either and her heart, heart to stop. And so there was a short period of time where the coroner wasn't going to let us donate. And you'd think that the lowest point would be when you find out you're not going to take her home. And that's when we realized how much being able to donate had an impact on us because that was actually our lowest point where it's like, well, we can save and Riley can save three people from going through what we're going through right now. Yeah. And when we realized, or we thought we might not even be able to do that, that was actually the bottom for us. Yeah. And luckily her doctor really stepped up and they were able to donate and um, she had three successful transplants and helped wow. save three different lives. Wow. So, I mean, of all the things that happened, that was something, something good that she did for them. Like you said, yeah. other families. Oh my goodness. So how was, um, I mean, the going through that then with Kyle and you guys just really leaning on each other for that. You told me that there was no blame and lots of open conversations and other things that you guys had to just really pull together to get through that together. Yeah. We, even when we were in the hospital with her, we, made sure we took the time to go somewhere private and have a conversation with each other because 
unfortunately, so many times when a couple loses a child, they also lose their marriages. Yeah. And we didn't want that to happen. And so we kind of set ground rules and said, there is no blame. We don't know what happened. It doesn't matter what happened. None, neither of us wanted this to happen. There's no blame of the other person and there's no blame of yourself, which is easier said than done. Right. But we kind of brought that up and we also said there's no, no grieving alone, no going into the shower to cry. So the other person doesn't see it because we need to be there for each other. And if you try to grieve alone, whether it's with the best of intentions, cause you're trying to protect them or cause you're ashamed or whatever the reason, if you try to grieve alone, separate from your partner, you're creating that divide. And so we really knew that if we were going to survive, the only way to do it was with each other. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so then, um, you guys, did you, when did you start writing this book? So, I started writing it actually about seven months after Riley had passed away. Okay. Um, I felt I had learned a lot about grief and how to grieve through my experience with Joe and some other losses that I'd had that I knew that I really felt better talking about my story. And so one, it was just a way to get my story out there and for me to share it. Um, but I'd also done a small speaking event where I'd talked about my story and my grief, I think for two hours and people still wanted to talk and have questions and I had more to say. And so I thought, well, maybe, maybe if I write it all in a book, it can help more people. Yeah. Did you do any journaling before that? Like after, after Joe or anything like that? I didn't. I tried a few times and I just have never been a fan of journaling and mm-hmm. I just sit there and like draw circles <laughs> and then give up eventually. Cause I, there was more important things to do, but I, I was never great at journaling. And really when I wrote the book, it was almost more like journaling because I just sat down and I just wrote, I had a great company I worked with who told me not to reread anything and just to write. Okay. And so I did that and um, they helped me pick the spots where I needed to do a little bit more work on it, but I wanted to make sure that I got as much of the emotion as I could into it. And I think the more I'd edit it, the more I would remove some of those parts. And so when I did write the book, it was a lot like just this one giant journal entry about my life for the last five years. Yeah. So how long did it take you to write the book? Uh, about it took about three months to get it written all the way through. Um, yeah, I wrote it pretty quick considering the kids and husband and work and all that, but that's quick. A lot of really early mornings and late nights and every once in a while I'd get a whole day where I could focus on it. And, um, then with the editing process took longer, but I think it, Overall, it took just over a year to get it done. That is amazing. Um, tell us all the name of the book again. Tell us the name of the book. The name of the book is Boldly Into the Darkness, 
living with loss, growing with grief, and holding on to happiness. And what I really wanted to convey with it was boldly into the darkness is all about facing your grief. Like I mentioned earlier, right after Joe died, I wanted to run away from it. And eventually I learned that it would always catch up to me. And when it did, it was always so much worse. Plus I was exhausted from the weeks I'd spent trying to run from it. And so I really wanted to convey that if you boldly face your grief and you face that darkness and all those horrible emotions that none of us want to feel, and you give yourself the permission to collapse into bed for two days if that's what you need, and to cry and to be sad, there's a little bit of peace and a little bit of that lightening of that grief you carry, um, that it's so much more worth it. And yeah. so I really, really wanted people to understand that part of the process and part of dealing with your grief is going through those emotions. So turning and facing it, boldly going into that darkness is a key component. Yeah. And then with the subtitle, living with loss, growing with grief and holding on to happiness are kind of the three stages I had noticed in my life was first you have to figure out how to even survive. You have to figure out how to live with what you don't have anymore. Yeah. And then I think you need to grow. You need to learn how to understand your grief and you need to understand why you feel the way you do and what it causes in you. Because for example, growing with my grief and understanding my grief, one really helped with Riley because I knew the signs for me of when I would start to fall into that depression or when I needed to find somebody to talk to. And it took me a long time after Joe to realize those things. And so I think you need to learn how to grow with it and to be willing to get the support you need when you need it. Yeah. Yeah. And I think everybody deserves to be happy. And sometimes it's really hard to find the happiness when you feel like everything in your world is going wrong. Yes. What would you say to some, to uh, a widow though, who is dealing with, um, with the guilt of being happy? I mean, how do you tell, what do you, what is your advice about, about the guilt aspect? Yeah, I think it's a really hard conversation because it's so easy to feel like if you're happy when the person you love isn't there, that means you didn't love them enough. Yeah. And it's, we try to equate happiness with love or unhappiness with loss and they really aren't correlated. They're not connected at all. And so try, trying to talk to people and really get them to understand that your happiness and how much you mourn somebody or how much you loved somebody aren't connected yeah. You grieve because you loved and you will grieve whether you're happy more often or whether you're sad more often. Right. And it, it really takes practice learning to embrace the happy. And I remember there were times where somebody would tell me a joke or they'd say something funny and I'd just sit there with no reaction on my face thinking, oh, that's funny. A few months ago, I would have found that funny. But now it just seems so dumb because I lost my husband and there's this huge thing there. And I, <laughs> I actually had to give myself permission, kind of be like, okay, I can recognize things that I'd find funny or things that would make me happy. 
okay, maybe today we can just try to smile at it. Recognize it. Be like, yes, that is nice. Yes, that is funny. And eventually it would come out to where I could smile and laugh more. But there's so much more self-awareness that comes, right? Don't you? Oh, yeah. Everything is lined up and you're just like, okay, this is my reaction. This is what, like, it's, it's, it's a different life. It's like you change. You just change so much with your self-awareness of everything. <laughs> it, it is. But I think being, having that awareness is so important to healing because it's so easy. It's so easy just to sit in that life is miserable. Nothing makes me happy. There's no color in this world. And it's easy to do that. And I think really recognizing that first step, that recognizing that I would have found that pretty or I would have found that funny or I would have liked to do that is the first step in giving yourself permission to do those things and to really embrace that happiness. Yeah. Yeah. Um, oh, this has been so great talking to you. I, I have some questions, just a couple of questions for you, but... Um... Okay. So, uh, first question, um, question number one. So we're getting into the holiday season and a lot of widows are dreading the holidays. Any advice for how to get through or have a non-stressful holiday season? Yes. Do whatever you need to do, which is always, all these things are easier said than done. Right. But I think so often, especially around the holidays, we feel like there's expectations of us. If you don't decorate, you're going to be the only house on the street that didn't decorate. Or if you don't do this with your kids or you don't have a tree or you don't go and spend time with family, it feels like there's so many expectations and it's so tiring (laughs) to try to deal with those and feel like you need to. And the thing is, you don't need to. You don't need to spend time with family if you would rather just spend the day and cry because you're sad. Or you can spend time with family and just say, hey, I might cry because I'm sad and this is hard. (laughs) And (laughs) it's really what you want to do. If you want to keep up traditions because you like those traditions, that's great. But if those traditions just feel too hard to do, make new traditions. Go on a trip. There's nothing that says you have to do what you've always done or what people expect you to do. Think about what you need and do that. And if you have kids, talk to them and see what they want to do. A lot of kids um, from other widows I've known, they really, especially the older kids, they don't like celebrating the same way they used to. They want something different. Yeah. But have those conversations and do what you need to do. And the people who love you should understand eventually. So what did you do your first Christmas? Um, I had everybody at my house. (laughs) Oh, wow. (laughs) Yeah. And I have a big family and a big extended family and Kyle's family was there and Joe's family was there. And I think we had 25 people in my house. Oh, wow. In hotels and in campers and sleeping on the floor and um, it was chaotic, but I, it was nice because I didn't have to do anything. I mean, they came to my house, but they did all the cooking and everything yeah, for me. But, yeah. Um, oh. I didn't feel up to traveling and I didn't feel like I didn't want to have three separate Christmases with all the different families. Yeah. 
Well, because then you had Kyle there. And so did you have, there's always a question that comes up about stocking stuff. You know, like, did you have a stocking for Joe or no? We did. We actually had stockings made and we had a stocking made for Joe. And I debated a lot about what to do with it. And what we ended up doing was we just said, he's in our hearts. It's Christmas. If you guys want to make him a Christmas present or a note or a picture, we'll put it in his stocking. And so we still Mm -hmm. hang up his stocking every year. And he's just got a handful of little pieces of paper in there that the kids have given him. Oh my God, how sweet. It helps him be a part of Christmas and a part of the family without being here. Oh God, you still do that? Yep. Wow. That's awesome. That's a great idea. <clears throat> oh my gosh. Okay. So um, I'm, I'm going to kind of wrap things up because we've been talking a while, but um, <laughs> thank you so much for talking to us today. And I, I wanted to just say like when we were talking the other day and you were telling me your whole story and everything, and it was heartbreak after heartbreak. And if I have ever heard a story of resilience and persistence and pushing through in the face of adversity, my God, I'm, I'm going to think of you a hundred percent, a hundred percent. Thank you. Thank you so much for inviting me to be on here and hopefully um, this conversation can help somebody out there. Yes. And I want to mention your website too, and then all the places that we can find you. So if you could share that with everybody. Yeah, the website is www.growingwithgrief.com. And it's mostly focused on providing resources to people who are grieving because sometimes when you need the resources the most, you don't have the energy to go out and look for them. And so I have a list of podcasts and books and organizations with links in them. And it's not as inclusive as I want it to be. And I still keep finding new things to add on whenever I have time. So check that out. And the book is also available for sale there or wherever you get books. Your local bookstore should be able to order it. And of course, it's available on Amazon as well. And then we can um, find that on Facebook too, the Growing With Grief. Okay. That's also on Facebook, Facebook. Instagram, and Twitter. So I'm going to put a link to everything in the show notes um, for the website and the book and everything. and, And you guys will be able to find everything there also. Great. So. Autumn, thank you so much for this conversation. Thank you so much for talking to us today. And um, Well, thank you. I'll talk to you soon, okay? Great. Okay, bye. Oh, man, you guys. Autumn has been through so, so much. Here are the takeaways from Autumn. Number one, her husband Joe passed away unexpectedly when he was out running one night And the autopsy report that they got, she had to wait about six months to get the report back. But they called it unknown natural conditions. That was the cause of death. Number two, Autumn's mom was able to move in with her for a few months and helped her get back on her feet. She pushed her to start functioning again and get back into the real world. Number three. A co-worker, Kyle, became her go-to grief person. They would talk, and he would talk to her about Joe, and let her talk about him and what she was feeling, 
But he also talked to her about other things not related to her loss, which a lot of people get uncomfortable, even just having regular conversations with people when they lose a spouse. But he was her go-to grief person, and he let her talk about everything, like work and the books that she was reading, just normal conversation. Number four, she realized that she had feelings for Kyle pretty quickly. It was about six months after Joe passed, and everyone was supportive and wanted to see Autumn happy. Her mother-in-law invited her and Kyle to her house and sat them down and told them, there is always room for more love, which I love that. Um, Number five, they had a memorial table at their wedding to honor Joe and other loved ones that they had lost. Um, They had pictures and some things set up on a table just as a special memorial to them. And Autumn actually still wears her wedding ring from Joe. So this was something I had never heard of before, but I think it's a really cool idea. She calls this her, she calls this ring, it's a special ring, and she calls it her widow's ring. So she wears a wedding band, and then she wears her wet, her wedding ring, but then she also wears this other ring um, to represent Joe and that life that she had with him. She told me, it's part of her story, and you can't pretend that part of the story doesn't exist. Number six, they decided that Kyle would legally adopt the boys, but at the same time, they didn't want to erase Joe completely. Um, They wanted the boys to keep their last name. So they had to jump through some hoops and make that happen. But they did. They were able to have them legally adopted and keep their last name. Number seven. In July 2018, Riley Marie, their little baby girl, was born. But at three and a half months old, Riley unexpectedly passed away of infant botulism. Number eight. Autumn started writing a book about seven months after Riley had passed. Her book is called Boldly Into the Darkness, Living with Loss, Growing with Grief, and Holding on to Happiness. Number nine, Autumn's advice for getting through the holidays is to do what you need to do to get through it. Don't worry about the expectations for this time of year or the things that you usually do. She told me another cool thing that she does. um, She actually hangs up a stocking for Joe every year. And anyone can put notes or cards or anything they want to share in his stocking every year. And I thought that was really cool. So you can find Autumn, you can find her book at www.growingwithgrief.com. And she's also on Facebook and Instagram and Twitter at Growing With Grief. And the name of her book, again, that is Boldly Into the Darkness, Living With Loss, Growing With Grief, and holding on to happiness. And there's one other thing I wanted to add to this week is that I wanted to tell Emma that I'm thinking and praying for her this week. Emma lost her husband two years ago tomorrow to lung cancer. So she's having a really rough week. And let's all try and send her some good vibes. Send her some good vibes her way. Emma, we're all here for you. Then I also wanted to remind everyone about our Widow Biz Weekend Edition of the podcast. It's going on now. It's going on between now and Christmas. And you guys, let's support each other and buy from each other this year. I I did my first Widow Biz Podcast Edition last Sunday with six of you beautiful ladies who called in to leave their business information. 
And if you want to advertise your business on the podcast, all you have to do is let me know. Uh, DM me on Facebook or Instagram or email me at jen at widow180.com. Let's make you visible. Let's get you seen and heard this year. I want to hear from you. We all do because we love to shop and we love buying things. And I can't believe that it's Thanksgiving already next week. My first, my first Thanksgiving without Brent, I, I packed up and left town with Claire. I didn't want to do any of the traditional normal things that we used to do together. I wanted it to be completely different. And I just hoped that my family would understand my choices. And I just wanted to leave town. So that's what we did. But I'm getting so excited about the Widow's Holiday Survival Club, which I think I'm officially going to change the name moving forward and call it the Widow's Holiday Sir Thrival Club 2020. You heard that change, right? I'm trying to say that. Try to say that three times fast. Sir Thrival Club. Sir Thrival Club. I like it, but it's hard to say. I don't know. Anyway. I have some special guest speakers, I have guest life coaches lined up, and activities planned, and all the Zoom calls slash happy hours. Oh, so good. So I really hope you can be a part of this group. I wish I'd had a club like like this for me. So you can still sign up for a few more days. The club starts Sunday, November 22nd, and it goes through January 1st. So you can register at www.widow180.com forward slash holidays. That's www.widow180.com forward slash holidays. Thanks for listening. Bye. Thank you so much for listening to Widow 180, the podcast. If you enjoyed this episode and you're seeking daily inspiration and guidance, you can follow me on Facebook at Widow 180, the community, on YouTube at Widow 180, the channel, and on Instagram at Widow 180. If you're interested in more grief and widowhood resources, including our latest freebie, How to Get Your Life Back Together After Loss, a 10-step checklist, head over to www.widow180.com forward slash freebie. That's www.widow180.com forward slash freebie.